So we'll start in Psalm 77. Let me give these four uh, openings to you again uh, real quickly. Psalm 77, Colossians 1, Romans 1, and Proverbs 8. Coloss- uh, I'm sorry, uh, Proverbs, I'm sorry. I'll get it right in a minute. Psalm 77, verse 18, or verse 14. <laughs> I, I've got kind of the same problem I had last week. I've got too much information. And I'm going to swamp you with information this morning. Um, for those of you that are note takers, let me apologize up front. There's not a chance for you to really take notes this morning. And, and that's really not the important thing. I just want you to uh, stop and consider some of the things that we're talking about. And, and um, I've, the challenge I've got is to not let the information get tedious because it's so overwhelming that, um, that sometimes things like that can be. Uh, Psalm 77, verse 14. Thou art the God that doeth wonders. The word wonders there is the word translated miracle in other places in the Bible. Thou art the God that doeth miracles. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Now in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing by the Holy Ghost said in verse 16, talking about Jesus, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Jesus is the creator. You know in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Where it said and God said. Let there be light and, and there was and so forth. We get the idea that that was God the father. But Jesus is always the agent. Of God's work here on the earth. God's the planner. Jesus is the executor. For by him were all things created. That are in heaven and that are in earth. Visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions. Or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Please notice that phrase, created by him and for him. Folks, you need to realize that Jesus coming to the earth was not an accident relative to the creation of the earth. He had a vested interest because he made it. He came to redeem mankind in the earth that he had created. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before, literally the word before means preeminent over, He is before all things, and by him all things consist. The word consist is interesting because it means to hold together. By him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He upholds all things with the word of his power. Jesus, who is the word made flesh, holds everything together. That will become more important to you as we go further this morning. Now in Romans chapter 1, God speaks of something regarding the creation and our attitude Toward it. Verse 20. For, by the, for the invisible things of him. From the creation of the world. Are clearly seen. I want you to notice that God says. You can see the invisible by looking at the earth. The invisible things of him. From the creation of the world. Are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. If We have a right understanding. Of what God did in making the earth. And creating the world around us. And even the universe. We can understand the power of God. We can understand everything about the kingdom of heaven. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The they he's talking about are those that reject him in the previous verses. So that they are without excuse. Finally in Proverbs chapter 8. These are some verses we're going to read about wisdom. 
We'll start reading in verse 22. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 22. It says the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. Before his works of old. And it's going to define that those works of old were the creation. Not just the creation of the earth as we know of in the, um, the Genesis account. Where he made man and put man in the middle of his creation. But the beginning before he made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the world was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heaven, the heavens, excuse me, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth. Then was I by him. As one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth. And my delights were with the sons of men. The definition of a miracle, there are many different definitions. I don't know that there's one that's, um, um, you know, universally accepted. But uh, a common definition of a miracle is divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Now, I like one uh, scientist's uh, definition or description of a miracle. He said a miracle is something outside of time and space entering time and space. I like that. I like that especially in in regards to the creation. Now, the fact that the, the world that we live in talks about miracle detergents, miracle sunsets, uh, the miracle of birth, and, and so forth, indicates that just how much we take for granted life, just how much we take for granted the existence around us. And most of the things that the world calls a miracle are really not. It's just the, the way that, that uh, nature was set up to operate. Poets will get real flowery about you know, the, the miracle of life when they're talking about a flower and, and things like that. But most of the times, in most cases, when people in, in the world that we live in, certainly the modern day world, talks about a miracle, it's just talking about the wonder of how nature normally operates. And we as Christians, I don't think, are much better because when we think of miracles, we think of Bible miracles, we think of the parting of the Red Sea, we think of the virgin birth, maybe the healings of Jesus or something along that line. But there is a miracle that, that far outstrips any of those things. The existence of man is the greatest miracle that you could possibly imagine. Now that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about creation. I want to talk to you about miracles in, in the sense of what God has done, things that we take for granted. Now my, my purpose, as I mentioned before, is to expand your thinking. I'm not trying to teach you anything. I'm not trying to, to get you to, to, to see a, a certain way or uh, persuade you to, to believe what I believe about something. I just want to give you some information, some factual information. And um, uh, I, I had to, well, to be charitable about this, it's simple information because that's about all I can understand. There's, uh, there's a lot of information that I've gathered about the earth and, and the way God made the earth and so forth that, that just completely goes over my head. I have no idea what it's talking about. But you need to understand some things, and that is the information that the world gives us, even about creation and even about the, the, the scientific view of creation, is not accurate. There is a, a group of scientists, not, certainly not the majority of them, 
even though that's reported otherwise. But the majority of scientists are not atheists. The majority of scientists do not believe that there is no God and that the things around us just happen. Now, that used to be the case. For example, in, um, uh, in every culture known to man except one, it was commonly accepted that a steady-state model of the universe was the case. Now, steady-state model means there was no beginning, there was no creation of the universe, it just is and always was. That was the prevalent view of every culture except one. That's uh, what the ancient Greeks believed, and they were considered to be the smartest of everybody around, and so they pr- propagated that, that theory, and, and, you know, it was kind of, like, in their day, it was kind of like in our day, if you challenge the establishment, if you challenge the intellectuals, then you're thought to be nobody and you're ridiculed and so forth. But um, uh, things changed beginning in the middle of the 20th century. In 1949, there was an interview on the BBC by a man named uh, Hoyle. And he came up with uh, a a coined phrase that's uh, common to us now. He called the universe, the beginning of the universe from a, uh, uh, to be the result of a big bang. That was uh, modified to to include the Big Bang Theory and and so forth. At the time that he spoke those words in 1949, most scientists did not agree. And it was only until 1964 when background radiation was discovered in space. Background radiation is considered to be, in layman's terms, is considered to be the white noise of the Big Bang. In other words, there's radiation in space. There are microwaves in, in space that nobody can account for their origin. That nobody can tell what's, uh, what they're for or the purpose or anything else. There's nothing without a source. There shouldn't be those things. But they can trace the, the, uh, the, the path that they've traveled and they all go back to a central point. At least as far as they can track it. They can project the, the, uh, uh, the path and, and so forth. And so the scientific models identified that background radiation uh, came from a central point, the same origin... And so they've surmised that that was the Big Bang. That was the explosion that created the, the universe. Um, the, the two people that, uh, that discovered background radiation won the Nobel Prize. And it was totally by accident. They weren't looking for anything like that. They were looking for something totally different. And, uh, and their discovery changed the, the thinking of science. Now, folks, you need to understand something else. And that is science either proves something or it does not. So when we hear the term the consensus of scientists... Consensus among scientists means this is their idea. Because if something's proven, there is no consensus. It's proof. There's no division between, well, here's what some think and here's what others think if the evidence proves one way or the other. So anytime you hear consensus among scientists, you hear that, uh, that term a lot of times being used about global warming. Well, the, the scientific consensus is this. That means theory. That means idea. That means here's what people think, but they don't have enough evidence to prove it. Well, that was the case where the the creation of the universe was concerned. So in 1964, things changed totally as a result of the the discovery of this background information. Now, there are certain things that have have changed greatly in the last 50 years. Science has made some some tremendous um, uh, advances. There are many things that have been discovered from that point in time. And, and if you think about it from uh, from the beginning of the uh, uh, from beginning of time, beginning of the creation, 
The fact that the most of the discoveries have been made in the last 50 years uh, is exactly what the Bible talks about in the last days when knowledge shall increase. Now, I mentioned that in every culture, the steady state model was accepted to be true, except one. Do you know what that one is? It's a Jewish culture. And the reason that the Jews didn't believe that is because God told Moses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So science, scientists and science found out some 35 years later that Moses was true, that what Moses said was true. They couldn't uh, acknowledge, and many of them still would not acknowledge that God was the creator, but they had to acknowledge that, the, that the, the universe had a creation. That might speak to some about the divine origin and inspiration of the Bible. Now, let's talk about the Big Bang for a little bit. I want you to understand that the steady-state model is no longer accepted, although it was for thousands of years. The steady-state model has been disproven, and now scientists have coined a phrase, the fine-tuned model, which shows the precision of the universe as it has been created, as it began. I, I use the word created because, of course, we believe that God is the creator. Not everybody does. Not everybody that believes that the universe had a beginning believes that there was a creator. So I'm not trying to speak for them or, or all scientists. But let's consider a few things about the fine-tuned precision of the creation. First of all, the speed of the bang. If the Big Bang was an explosion, it's hard for us to, to conceive of this because we think of the explosions to be destructive things. We think of hand grenades and bombs and th- infl- uh, instruments of war and things like that, that that bring destruction. But the Big Bang theory is a creation point where there was nothing, an explosion, and then matter exists. That's hard to, that's hard to fathom. Yet that's what the evidence shows. Now, the speed of the bang is very, very interesting and uh, very important because if the explosion had been greater than it was, then matter would not have clumped together. There would be no stars. There'd be no planets. Matter would have effectively dispersed into nothing. If it had been slower than it was, then everything would have clumped together in one big, big clump. You'd have one big clump of mass or matter And there would be no universe, there'd be no stars, there'd be no planets, there'd be nothing. There'd be nothing that supports life. Now, slightly, as the the phrase is used, if it was slightly faster, then matter would have been dispersed. If it was slightly slower, all the matter would have clumped together into one mass. The word slightly is literally a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. Physicists say that it is the most extreme fine-tuning yet discovered in physics. Now, here's what happened when the Big Bang occurred. The Big Bang created four fundamental laws of physics. Four fundamental laws. The first law is gravitational force. We know what gravity is. We've got an idea about what gravity is because it affects us. The second law is the electromagnetic force. The electromagnetic force is the force. Well, let me make sure that I get my notes right on all this stuff. It holds atoms and molecules together. In other words, it's the thing that keeps an atom from breaking apart. Scientists really don't understand why that is. Because you've got opposing forces, a positive force, proton, and a negative force, electron, spinning around each other. The centrifugal force in itself should separate them. The, uh, the, the opposite forces working against one another should separate them. But something holds them together. They've considered that or called that the electromagnetic force. The third fundamental law that uh, came into being was the weak nuclear force, and that deals with radioactive decay. We won't talk about that one much. The fourth one was the strong nuclear force, which holds the nucleus of an atom together. 
I'm sorry, I just uh, interposed the electromagnetic force and the strong nuclear force. The strong nuclear force is what holds the atom together. The electromagnetic force is what holds molecules together to form something solid or substance. Now, here's the question that science has. How did those things just occur? Who predetermined the values? The values of those are so fine-tuned that if any of those were even a fraction, uh, and, and the fractions that I'm going to tell you about are so far removed from reality that we can't even comprehend the difference. But how were those values determined? And why were those values constant? Why did the Big Bang create something? I mean, even if it created these four forces, that which are the building blocks of the universe, why don't they change? Something holds them constant. And science has no idea what that is. They don't know who, what predetermined the values. They don't know what holds them constant. They don't know how they just happen to be there. But if all four of them weren't there in the same ratio that they are, if the universe were just, a, if the, any of these forces were just a fraction of a degree different, the universe wouldn't exist and life wouldn't exist. Now, here's an interesting point, and that is science has determined that each of these values were established once and for all, forever, as a constant, within one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. It's not like somebody sat back and figured this out, at least that man knows about. Now, here's, here's how fine-tuned these things are. The strong nuclear force. Strong nuclear force is what holds the atom together. If there was... A 2% weaker, if the strong nuclear force were 2% weaker, protons and neutrons wouldn't stick together. If 0.3, three-tenths of a percent stronger, only heavy elements would exist. That means there wouldn't be any hydrogen, which means there wouldn't be anything to support life. There are four elements that are, that are um, extremely fine-tuned for carbon-based life to exist. Helium, carbon, oxygen, and beryllium. If just 1% different, there would be no life. Now, the guy that I told you about, Hoyle, that uh, coined the phrase the Big Bang, as I mentioned, he was an atheist. He's the one that discovered the fine-tuning of these four elements. And he said, as an atheist, that this was the one factor in nature that caused him to doubt his atheism. Later in his life, he said, he came to the point where he said, the idea that there's not some intelligent or uh, not intelligent, what's the phrase he used? Universal spirit. Uh, now, that doesn't sound like he found Jesus to me. But who knows? But he said the idea that there's not some universal spirit behind the fine-tuning of the universe is incomprehensible. Now, that's what an atheist said. And he was the foremost atheist of his day. As I said, his, his, um, his stuff was back in the the 40s, the 50s, and the and 60s, and even early into the 70s. So he saw some of these things coming around, but not even the, the degree to what has been discovered of later years. Now, the electromagnetic force is the thing that holds everything together. It's the thing that creates stuff that we see by holding atoms and molecules together. If it were stronger, then electron, electron, uh, electrons couldn't pull away to form other molecules. You know, that's how, that's how different matter and different uh, elements are formed and so forth. One electron will jump to another and they'll bond together and it'll create something different than what started. If the electromagnetic force was stronger, then an electron couldn't jump to another molecule. So we wouldn't have any matter. 
If it were weaker, the atoms wouldn't hold their electrons at all. Everything would just split off into the universe. Now, here's, here's where things get kind of difficult. If the ratio of the strong nuclear force to the electromagnetic force were different by just one part in 10 to the 16th power, the universe wouldn't exist. Now, 10 to the 16th power is a one with 16 zeros. Now, I know numbers can get tedious, so let me, let me kind of put this in context. Do you know what the odds are of you dying in a plane crash? It's one in 11 million. How many of you fly? It's a chance worth taking, right? But let's go even further. There is a one in 112 million chance of death by vending machine. I'm telling you the truth. And there's a 1 in 175 million chance that you'll win the Powerball lottery. (laughs) So let me suggest if God's not giving you the numbers, don't play. These are things just to put, put in context what stuff means. 1 to the 12th power, I should say 10, but a 1 with 12 zeros is a trillion. Now, it's estimated, it was estimated at the end of October of last year that in in circulation there is 1.3 trillion dollars in circulation that's paper money that's coins that's everything in the United States or U.S. currency it doesn't all have to be in the U.S. but the U.S. Treasury has estimated that there is 1.3 trillion dollars in United States currency now if you had all the money that was in circulation you'd consider yourself be doing pretty good right these numbers are far outweighing that A trillion is 10 to the 12th power. This is a one with 16 zeros or 10 to the 16th power. So if the ratio of the strong nuclear force to the electromagnetic force were different by just one part in 10 to the 16th power, one with 16 zeros, the universe wouldn't exist. If the ratio of electromagnetic force to gravitational force were different by one part in 10 to the 40th power one with 40 zeros the universe wouldn't exist someone likened it to a marksman shooting at a coin across the observable universe 20 billion light years away and hitting the target there's a Caltech astrophysicist named Hugh Ross that used this to describe what 1 to the 40th power is. Listen to this. He said, if you cover every square inch of North America with dimes, layered to the height of the moon, that's 238,000 miles, do the same thing with 1 billion North Americans. So you got a, you got a billion piles, 238,000 miles high of dimes. Now pick one dime from those 1 billion piles 238,000 miles high, paint it red and put it back in the pile. Blindfold your friend and ask him to pick the dime from the billion 238,000 mile high piles and the odd of him picking the painted dime while blindfolded are 10 to the 40th power. 
Folks, the point is, these numbers are silly when you consider their, the magnitude. Here's some other things that we won't go into, just to kind of give you a little bit of information. Protons have a mass 1,836 times electrons. If it was slightly larger or smaller, the universe wouldn't exist. The stars in the Milky Way are 30 trillion miles apart, more or less, and the solar system wouldn't exist. Mass density precision, if it was different by one part in 10 to the 60th power, would nullify the possibility of life. Space energy density precision. Now, I don't even try to, try to explain what those things are. I thought about it, and I finally got confused, and I just said, well, let's just give the names. If space energy density precision were different by one part in 10 to the 120th power, that's a one with 120 zeros, would nullify the possibility of life. Very simply, science has discovered that our existence is the most outrageous miracle conceivable. Now let's talk about life on other planets. This is where it gets interesting to me. How many of you believe in life on other planets? You wouldn't answer no matter what I ask this morning, would you? I used to believe in life on other planets. And I have to say most of that was governed by two things. One, uh, one was Star Trek and science fiction movies. <laughs> but then I had the idea that the universe is so big, it's so vast, it's, that we don't know the number of stars in the sky and, and so forth, that, that surely God wouldn't have made that just for Earth, for the sake of Earth. Surely there must be something else going on out there. Well... In doing some study, I realized that that idea was popularized. I didn't come up with that idea on my own. It was popularized. And it was popularized in 1966 by a man named Carl Sagan. You ever heard of him? Well, he's dead now, and I'm sure his theories are different. (laughs) But he was an atheist. And in 1966, he said... That the sheer probability that Earth is the only planet that would support life is ridiculous. It's absurd. He, he used the phrase arrogant. It's arrogant of human beings to think that the universe is just for us. And so he uh, did some determination. He did some calculation. And he calculated that the chances of another planet that supports life being in the universe were 1 in 10,000. In other words, he said one out of every 10,000 planets should be able to support life. Now, he based that on two known critical life factors. One was a sun that provided light and heat for the planet. And the second was this distance from the sun. So that if we were too close, you know, life wouldn't exist because it'd burn up too far away. It wouldn't exist because it would freeze. In the last 50 years... The last 50 years, from 1966 to 2015, in the last 50 years, they found that there are not two life-critical factors. There are more than 150. The chances, the odds, the statistical probability that just the 150, and they're discovering new stuff all the time, that just the 150 life-critical factors would be present in any planet, including Earth, are below zero. Statistically, the Earth's existence is the butterfly, I'm sorry, the, the bumblebee of the universe. 
It flies, but it shouldn't be able to. We exist, but we shouldn't. Let's talk about some of these things. First, one of the critical factors, we'll just pick a couple of them just to to give you something to think about. One of the critical factors is the size of the earth, which really has to do with the mass, the gravitational force. Gravitational force is not based on size, it's based on mass or density. If the gravitational force of the earth was more than methane gas, which has a molecular weight of 16, and ammonia gas, which has a molecular weight of 17, would remain low to the surface and prevent breathing or life. We need oxygen. We can't breathe methane or ammonia. But the gravitational force of the earth is such that a molecular weight of 16 and 17 is allowed to escape and dissipate into the atmosphere. But if it were less, if the gravitational force were less, then water vapor, which has a molecular weight of 18, would not remain low to the surface where we need it to survive because we're 75% water. So what I want you to understand is the gravitational force, which was created within one millionth of a second after the Big Bang, is so fine-tuned as to the difference. Life is so fragile in that context that it's the difference between the molecular weight of water vapor at 18, which is held to the earth, and ammonia vapor, which is 17, that's allowed to escape into the atmosphere. Now, folks, we're not talking about the difference between a 5 and a 10-pound weight. We're talking about the weight of a molecule. What about water? We learned in uh, high school science that a gas is less dense than a liquid and a liquid is less dense than a solid, right? So somebody tell me why ice floats. Well, there's an answer. There's a scientific answer. Water becomes more dense as it approaches freezing. Freezing is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But at 39.2 degrees, things change. It starts becoming less dense. Now, here's why. We know that the the, um, formula, uh, I guess that's the right word to use for water, is H2O, right? That means two hydrogen atoms to one oxygen atom. Those two hydrogen atoms are in a V-shape to the oxygen atom at 104.5 degrees. The angle is 104.5 degrees. That angle, as it approaches freezing, causes water to freeze in a hexagonal shape, which takes up more space but becomes less dense than liquid water. So the whole universe, if this were not true, now think about what this means. If this were not true, if water froze just like every other liquid and everything else freezes, then that means that lakes would freeze from the bottom up, not from the top down, which would destroy all fish, all aquatic life, and everything that depends on water for life, including man. So please notice, one of the life-critical factors is that the shape of the water molecule, the angle, the V-shape of the, 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 the two hydrogen molecules attra- attached to the oxygen molecule in water, if that were different by just a fraction, life wouldn't exist. Remember where we started over in Proverbs chapter 4 where wisdom said I was with God before the creation of the world. He used me when he brought forth the heavens and the earth, commanded the seas and so forth. Folks, everything around us points to the greatest miracle that we could imagine. 
There are other properties of water that are life-critical factors. One is the high boiling point. If water didn't boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, life couldn't exist. If water didn't have the ability to dissolve a large number of chemical substances, life wouldn't exist. If water didn't have heat retention properties to help stabilize and moderate temperatures, life wouldn't exist. What about the rotation of the earth? If the rotation of the earth was smaller or, excuse me, slower, then temperature swings would be deadly. Nighttime cold would be dramatically colder. Daytime heat would be dramatically hotter and it would make life impossible. If the rotation of the earth were faster, the shorter days would produce impossibly high winds. We don't know and they don't know how to forecast how high the winds would be, but it's not on, uh, out, outside the realm of reason to consider that those days or those winds would be a thousand miles an hour. Well, we know just in some of the, the, uh, the experiences that we've had, like the Dust Bowl in the Midwest and so forth, that the food sources and everything else would be decimated by high winds like that. Half of those high winds, a tenth of those high winds would still do great damage. So life is dependent on the speed of the Earth's rotation to two-tenths miles per hour. If the earth was two-tenths of a mile, mile per hour, faster or slower, life wouldn't exist. Another thing that life is dependent on, a life-critical factor, is the presence of an extremely large planet in our solar system. Jupiter's diameter is 11 times the earth's. Its surface is 122 times the earth's. And it's the sphere of Jupiter would fit 1,320 earths in it. It has 318 times the mass of earth. It has 318 times the earth's gravity. What that means is it pulls every comet that comes near and absorbs it into the gas depths or deflects the path out of the solar system. Without Jupiter being in our solar system, the Earth would be struck with comet and comet debris 1,000 times more frequently than we are and would destroy life on the Earth. What about the moon? The size and the mass and the gravity affects the ocean tides. We all know that. If it were bigger, there would be higher tides, a greater gravitational effect. 100-foot tides would prevent coastal cities, food sources, shipping, and etc. If it were smaller, the tides would be insufficient to cleanse the coastal seawater and replenish the nutrients. The moon affects the, the, uh, the tilt of the earth. The size and the distance of the moon is responsible for stabilizing the earth's rotational axis. The tilt of the earth determines the seasons and the temperatures that we experience and is critical to human life. One degree difference in the earth's tilt would prevent the existence of life. And that's held in place by the moon to a great degree. The number of, our, of moons is important. Earth is the only one in the solar system that has only one moon. Some have none. Jupiter and Saturn, for example, have more than 50 Mars has two. We know of two major moons that Mars has. But the Earth has the largest moon relative to the size of the planet, which affects the size, and, uh, which affects the gravitational pull and the tides and the tilt and the rotation and so forth. It shows the exceptional nature of the Earth. Another thing about this, and this is just for a kind of a sideline, is the eclipses. Do you know the reason that, the, that an eclipse occurs? The only way that an eclipse could occur is if the sun and the moon appeared to be the same size from the earth. Now the earth is 93 million miles away from the moon roughly. I'm sorry, 93 million miles away from the sun. The 
The sun is 400 times the size of the moon. To appear the same size, the sun would have to be 400 times the distance from the earth as the moon. You know how far away it is? 389 times further away than the moon is. 93 million miles divided by 238,000 is 389. It's almost like God's decorating. He throws the moon up there. He throws the sun up there and says, no, that's right. Move this. And if you do any study on eclipses, you'll find out that eclipses have been used in history and have, uh, have been uh, landmarks in historical events. Eclipses, or the, well, I should say it this way. The sun was uh, claimed by many kings, many emperors and so forth, people that were rulers, to be the source of their power. So an eclipse created a lot of revolutions on the earth. And eclipses have stopped wars. There was a war that was taking place in ancient times that we have a historical record of that when the eclipse occurred, they realized or they counted it as God was mad at the war, so they made peace. An eclipse was prophesied in Amos chapter 8. And we have historical evidence that it came to pass in the Assyrian Empire. And they recognized the people of God were indeed of the creator of the universe. There have been all kinds of things that eclipses have been used for and, uh, and, and really um, have been helpful in. An eclipse was the thing that proved science, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. Because during the eclipse, the gravitational pull of the moon bent the, the light from the sun and they were able to measure it. So there's a lot of things that have taken place. And, and from that standpoint, it's not critical. It's not a life critical issue or factor. But it's almost like God set, set this thing out and said, well, we don't want this thing just to work right. We want it to look right too. Now, what does all this mean? Turn with me to Psalm 8. With, with these 150 life critical factors that are known and discovered by science, instead of just the two that Carl Sagan talked about, with 150 life critical factors known, the odds of a planet supporting life, remember I said in Carl Sagan's day were 1 in 10,000? They're less than 1 in 10 to the 73rd power. A 1 with 73 zeros. The one thing science can't, can't define is why there is life in existence. We know that there is. We're, the, we're here on the earth and we're asking what's life mean? What's the meaning of life? Why do we exist? But science can't tell you for, for beans. How in the world all these things happen? Psalm 8. Let's start reading in verse 3. This is a psalm of David. Notice what David said. David said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. The word ordains means set in place. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. The word there is not the word angel. It is the word Elohim. It literally means you've made man a little lower than yourself. And it's crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now David is speaking these things. But Paul, assuming Paul was the writer of the book of Hebrews, tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 
this was revealed to David as the conversation the angels had with God at creation. The angels who are spirit beings have just witnessed creation and said, what is man? They witnessed the wisdom that God used to put all these life critical factors in place. That at just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent difference, life could not be possible. And then he put man in the middle of it and gave him dominion. And the angels are saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visitest him? You made him a little lower than yourself. You made man as close to yourself as is human, as, well, humanly, divinely possible. God made man as much like himself as he could. And then said, the reason I made you is for you to have dominion over all the works of my hands. There's another scripture. You can turn to it if you want to. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. It says this. You're probably familiar with it, if, even if you don't know the reference. It says, casting all of your care on him, for he cares for you. The Amplified says, casting the whole of your care, all of your anxieties, all of your worries on him, for he cares for you watchfully and cares about you affectionately. I think I've mixed those up. He cares about you affectionately and for you watchfully. He uses those two terms, watchfully and affectionately. The word careth for you in the, in the Greek is a little bit further than that. It goes a little bit further. The Amplified does do exactly what it, uh, the title says. It amplifies it. But it leaves out something in my thinking that, uh, that's always been a blessing to me. And that is this. Where it says, for he careth for you, casting the whole of your care upon him, for he careth for you. The word care uh, implies inner metals in your affairs. God meddles in your affairs. Now, when I read these things, and I, I've, been, I've been studying on this stuff for a while, and, and um, um, I, I'm kind of at information overload with some of this stuff myself. So I, it's, uh, forgive me if I swamped you with, with stuff. But anyway, when I think about some of these things, I think of two things. I think of the angels that we just read of in Psalm 8 asking God, what is this creation that you made and man that you made it for? I, I don't know how any rational person could think there would be life on other planets by looking at the statistical probabilities that the life critical factors have determined. The things that are necessary to support life. Well, what does that mean? That means God created a universe from the original Big Bang, if we accept their terms. God speaking and saying, let there be light. And that Big Bang is still occurring. It's the universe is still expanding. Stars and planets are still being formed. God's word never stopped. He never said bang and stop. And so it continues. And it continues to expand for what? What does all this stuff mean? There's all kinds of different ways that God could have done this. I think about when another thing I think about in relation to this is I think about God talking to Job. Where Job brought accusation against God. Finally, after his friends kind of talked him into it and ticked him off. To the point where he said, yeah, God's done me wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. God has mistreated me. And then God shows up and says, where were you when I created the earth? And he goes through this specific 
details about it. He said, when I put a compass on the deep, were you there? You're going to put yourself in a position to where you judge God for what he's done wrong. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? He talks about the creation of the fish of the sea. He talks about the animals on the earth. He says, could you go down and play with them like I do? Where were you? Finally, Job bows his head and says, you know, I I spoke out of turn. Now, nobody, no scientist anywhere under any circumstances would deny the possibility of a force outside of a closed system entering into that closed system. In other words, there is, for, for a scientist to say, and, it, and, and you can find a lot of articles like this. Uh, there was a, a 2013 article where, uh, where some guy that um, uh, he's not really a well-known scientist at all, but, um, but he calls himself a scientist and he re- does some research. He said, we know for a fact that there is no God and there is no creator of the universe. Well, okay, that may be a fact for him, but he's ignoring certain factors. There is no scientific evidence. Now, some will say, well, since we can't prove there's a God, there can't be one. But some of the same people, because of their ideology, because of their liberal ideology, will say just because we haven't found a homosexual gene doesn't mean there isn't one. In other words, science leaves a lot of opportunity, a lot of opening for new discovery. So anytime you hear somebody say as a fact or present as a fact, that there can't be any God, there can't be any creator of the universe, there can't be any intelligent design. They're speaking out of their ideology. They're speaking out of their preconceived notions about their own beliefs, not according to scientific evidence. And more and more, the more discoveries are made, the more these life-critical factors are, are discovered, the more the probability goes below zero for life on the earth, that the earth could have been this way just by chance the more Christian scientists are speaking up. The further and further that we go, the more and more people are speaking out. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If God could create the system, and by the system, I'm talking about the universe. I'm talking about time and space. I'm talking about everything we know in space, everything we know about the universe, and everything we know about the earth. If God could create that system, Who is it that could possibly say that he couldn't interject into that system? Who could possibly say that he could create man, but he couldn't interject his healing power into man? See, as I started off this morning, I said, we Christians think of, and I assume this is true. This is true for me. I assume it's true for others. When we think of miracles, we think of the things that the Bible talks about. We think of the Red Sea crossing, God parting the water. We think of God causing the sun and the moon to stand still for Joshua. We think of the virgin birth. Do you realize how easy the virgin birth was as far as miracles are concerned in relation to the creation of the earth? Yet we look at things. We from a human standpoint, we look at things and we think, wow, this is a tough situation. I think of God speaking to Abraham. When Abraham was talking to God about being too old to have a child. And the Lord asked him, he said, is anything too hard for me? Me doing these studies. Me finding out the probability and the statistical probabilities and the odds. And and all some of the things that that we've talked about. and, And I promise I won't do this for the whole series. 
I may throw one here at you every now and then, but this expands my thinking to what God could do because he's already done it. And he didn't make a big deal about doing it either. I mean, when man came on the earth, he didn't show up and say, let me tell you what I did. Let me explain it to you. But the more man grows and the more man is able to make scientific discoveries, the bigger and bigger and bigger God gets. If God could do just one of these things, not all of these things, but if God could do just one of these things, how hard would it be for him to help you? You know what God talks about as being his greatest miracle? His greatest work? God talks about his greatest work as giving you Jesus. Not making you an earth. And Paul, in speaking about this, said, How shall God, if he's already given you his son, how shall he not also with him freely give you all things? I look at the earth and I look at the creation and some of the information I'm getting about it. And it's like, wow. God looks at it and says, yeah, well, I had to do that. He looks at Jesus and says, but here's the best thing that I did. Here's my greatest work. Bible talks about in the Old Testament, it says that God created the earth. Or I'm sorry, God created the universe with his fingers. Literally, from the original Hebrew, it says God made the stars like that. But he made man with his hands. He formed man with his hands. He took extra care with man. And the Bible says that God's greatest display of power was not the Big Bang. God's greatest display of power was the force that he exercised to raise Jesus from the dead. And the Bible says that's the power that dwells in you and me. No wonder Paul prayed for us that our eyes would be open to who we are in Christ what God has called us to do, and the exceeding greatness of his power that dwells in us. You have more power in you than what God used to create the universe and do all these things, 10 to the 20th and 30th and 40th and 73rd powers. That's who God made you and me to be. Life is such a precious thing. I I guess that's... Uh, If that's not the bottom line, that's one of the main things about this for me. I'm realizing how precious life is from God's perspective. And how we shouldn't take it for granted. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. God, you created a universe that was impossible to make for anybody but you. Impossible for man to even comprehend. Fully at least. But you made it so that man could have dominion. You made it so that man could have a place. And so that you could have fellowship with us. You made man for the express purpose of living inside of us. You made that possible through Jesus and his sacrifice. 
Father, in the precious and holy name of Jesus, we would ask that you would expand our thinking, expand our understanding to where we would truly know what you were asking. Is anything too hard for the Lord? If you loved us so much to make a universe that would sustain life for us when we wouldn't appreciate it in the way that we should, maybe that we don't even now. But if you did such a great work just to provide a place for us, open our eyes, Lord, to what you're willing to do so that we walk in freedom from your enemy. Spiritually, mentally, and physically. Thank you, Father, that you didn't leave us here on this earth to be bound by the enemy. You didn't leave us here on this earth to be bound in any way by the works of the devil. But in fact, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. A spiritual law that's just as real, even more real than physical laws. And you freed us from those spiritual laws by the truth of what Jesus has done for us Father open our eyes open our eyes so that we would see open our eyes so that we would see Father what you really meant when you said all things are possible to him that believes open our eyes expand our thinking Lord so that we live on a plane where the miraculous is commonplace for these are the last days these are the days where the work of Jesus should be done. These are the days where the power of, you, of God, the power of Jesus' name, should be made manifest. These are the days where healings should become evident in a measure like we've never seen before. We ask you to use us, Father, not because we're worthy, but because we're your children. For our worth is only in one thing, and that is the blood of Jesus. We were worthy of Jesus' blood. Therefore, we're worthy to be called your sons and daughters. Use us, Father. Use us. Use us in miracles, Lord. Use us to display your love and your goodness and your power. We thank you for the reign of God upon the earth in these last days, Lord. We thank you for the reign upon our church. Thank you, Lord, that you do miracles among us. You do miracles through us. Thank you, Lord, that you bring your will to bear on this earth, in this place. Thank you, Lord. For showing us just how trustworthy you are. How sure your word is. The sure foundation that we have. To stand upon your word in faith. To receive even the miraculous. Lord do great things in the earth in these last days. Do great things in your people. We don't ask selfishly. We don't want to be just the only ones Lord. We ask for the glory of the Lord to be seen upon the earth. But Lord, we don't want to be left out either. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Believing. Amen.
Amen.